Greetings to you as you join us for Book by Book. We're doing Bible study in the book of the prophet Isaiah right now. We're coming to the next in our series of studies. And as we come to it, I want to welcome you first of all. I'm Richard Bewes and joining me here is Paul Blackham, who's home really, well, he was born in Lancashire. And then our special guest today is Alec Matia, whose home was originally in Dublin, in Ireland. And as we do book by book, please join us. If you've got one of those study guides, that could be useful. If you've got a Bible with you, open it up. And I think we're going to do chapters 28 to 33 of Isaiah. And I'll start with a little reading from chapter 28. Why don't I start at, I think, verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. And I think we'll stop the reading there, but that's why we're doing all of these chapters and we'll do as well as we possibly can. You know, there was a book written in the 19th century called Historic Ninepins, and it catalogued the falls of various people in history and also in literature, uh, from Napoleon to people like Jack the Giant Killer. Well, here we get featured the evildoers who themselves were scheduled to fall. And uh, we find in these chapters six great woes are pronounced in turn on various categories of evildoers, Starting chapter 28, verse 1, with Ephraim in the north, tottering like a drunkard. But then, you know, friends, there was evidently a firm foundation available for them. Was there not, Alec Matia? Yes, there are six woes, and uh, that's, how, that's the way Isaiah divides up these chapters, so we should pay attention to it. And if you look at them, you'll find that they fall into two sections of three and they balance each other out. The first is balanced by the fourth, the second by the fifth, and the third by the sixth. And the whole series of six woes holds together like that. Now, in a broad sense, the first woe concerns turning away from the word of God. The second woe concerns turning for collective security and making treaties and alliances for earthly safety. That's and then the third woe goes yeah. zooming on ahead to the new society that is yet to come when, as we, would say, as we would say as Christians, when Jesus reigns. Chapter 30. And the king who comes into his own. Yes. That's the way it works out. And uh, that indeed is the way that these six woes speak to us very directly. The word of God do we hold it or reject it? What is our security in Jesus or in earthly friendships, bank balances? And do we really understand about what's coming, the king and the perfect society? In chapter 28, verse 16, then, oh, this yeah. stone, this foundation That's stone right. yeah. has been laid. Yes, probably refers to the promises of God made to David. Mm. And it's quoted in the New Testament, isn't it, it is specifically to... In, 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 in 1 Peter. Mm. Which again is a good start for our study. 
Then, actually, as we look on at verse, uh, chapter 29, uh, looking south now at Judah, it seems to me from verse 13 that in some situations, religion actually can be a person's weakest spot. Is that not so? Oh, it is. And this takes us back. Isaiah, this is something he likes to expose, the hypocrisy and of religion, because we know we have to do with the living God. But, we, but in our sinfulness, we don't want to. No. So in the end, what we do is we'll invent religions and spiritualities and idols and anything in order to salve our consciousness and make ourselves feel that we're being <clears throat> real and we're dealing with God, when, of course, we're running away from him and we're putting up barriers. Would you, would you say that God is not very religious? Well, that's true. God's not religious at all. Mm. In fact, when, it's funny, nowadays people write books against religion. I often think, I hey, know. that's nothing compared to the prophets. Mm. You should read the prophets rage against religion uh, more than anyone does nowadays because they get at the fundamental stuff in a way. And this bit in... Um, Chapter 29, verse 13, these people come near to me with their mouth, honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus um, picks that up in Mark 7. The Pharisees come to Jesus and go, hey, hang on, why don't you do all those traditions and all that religious stuff? And Jesus really kind of goes, oh, you guys, you never change. It's always the same. And he well, actually says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. And then he quotes that very verse. These people honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. That's religion. It's just human traditions and human ways of doing things without actually engaging. And of course, the living God's there saying, come to me, find refuge in me. Forget all this religious rubbish, rituals, traditions and ceremonies. What's the relevance of all that without the actual Lord God himself who offers himself? No, you're right. I like that. God hates religion. Jesus is one of the least religious people you could ever meet. It's the religious people he's always arguing with. Yeah. And I mean, actually, any Christian worker has to guard against this hypocrisy uh -huh. of just going through the motions. Mm, you know, yeah. it's, it can happen to anybody, yeah. anybody at all. Then uh, I noticed there's another woe, as you were reading earlier, you were mentioning earlier, chapter 30, Woe to these obstinate children, you were saying, Alec. Well, mm. God's this people... Chapter 30, verse 1. 30, yes, verse 1. Then look at verse 11, begging mm. the prophets to stop confronting them with the Holy One of Israel. Mm. What would lead supposed believers to think that way? Well, you, 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 that title, the Holy One of Israel, is not quite but virtually exclusive to Isaiah. And... Of Israel means that he's here out and about among us. Mm -hmm. The Holy One means that he's come in all his holiness. Mm -hmm. And that's what people didn't want. Mm -hmm. They would be quite happy with a sort of grandfatherly God, but not a God who is holy. Yes. And, 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 and do you know, is that still the same today? I mean, we're, we're seeing, are we not, uh, an uprise in advocating universalism and God is a God of love. Mm. Well, in the Bible, he's first of all a God of holiness. Yes. And everything about him, even his love, is a holy love. Mm. And, and in, 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 filled with that awesome holiness which 
is outraged by sin. So that even his love is outraged by sin. And, and we've, just, we've just lost, as, as the people in Isaiah's day did, we've lost the, the holiness of God. Wow, that's powerful. And there's that, they have that idea of this high wall which looks as if it's solid, yeah. but actually it's, it's completely on. fractured and it's we're going to fall out. It's, it's on its yeah. way, yeah. And then, so they're sort of like, oh yeah, we're all right with God, everything's fine. Mm. And he's like, no, you don't see! You I don't checked, uh, see! That's verse 13, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's cracked, bulging, and yeah. it collapses suddenly. And actually, that's what happens often with false ways. Mm. They collapse usually when they go, boom, oh, like very quickly. Yeah. It's, it's alarming, it's very frightening. And for them, they were trusting in Egypt, isn't it? I love that bit where he goes, oh, Egypt. Rahab the do-nothing kind of thing in yeah. verse 7. So they think, oh, Egypt, that's where all the security yeah. is. And the Lord's like, nah, there's nothing, nothing, nothing. If you wanted to be rude, you could translate Rahab big mouth. <laughs> big mouth. Yes, yeah. Rahab was a kind of nickname for yeah. Egypt, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. It means yeah. arrogant boasting, blustering. Blustering. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then when you think of the judgment, the days of judgment on mm. Israel and the nations, in chapter 30, verse 1 to 32, mm. this can, that can also be a day of music, it seems. I know. Is, so we would ask again, as we've asked earlier, let's just comment on this fact. A, a day to be feared or desired, oh, I, great theologian. Uh, well, I, I don't know, but I do see that in, in Isaiah, that there's this sense in which it's a, this terrible day where this, the holiness of the Lord comes. And of course, because all of us mm. are caught up in our sin and arrogance and self-security and rottenness and religion, that means the end of all that. It's the end of human, the humanity in that sense. There's no, everything must go. Mm. And, yet, and so there's that sense which, oh, it's a terrible day. It's a fearful day. And yet... For those who've abandoned that and trusted in the Lord and come to him for refuge, what a day of celebration. And it's the day to be longed for, the day of justice and compassion and love and holiness and righteousness. And you, I think the way it comes out most striking is in chapter 30, verse 32. Every stroke the Lord lays on them in his destruction, when he's rod and he strikes down the Assyrians and Chesons, every stroke the Lord lays on with his punishing club will be to the music of tambourines and harps. So it's like as if there's a sort of rejoicing going on as the destruction is happening. And he brings together things that seem impossibly to go together. But when you understand that, we well, that's will... a reference back to Passover night, isn't it? Passover night, yeah. of course. Yeah, the night festival, and within the houses, as they feasted on the lamb, there was rejoicing in salvation and deliverance. But outside, it was destruction. Yeah. Outside destruction, and that you made the point in an earlier study how judgment and redemption have to go together. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and ultimately, when the believer sees. You know, the whole apparatus of evil being dismantled in one day on that day. Well, we'll be, we should be jumping on the grave of Babylon. Oh, mm. yeah. Mm. With thankfulness. Tremendous celebration. Uh, ex extraordinary. I mean, from the uselessness of Egypt, that's mentioned often, and the certainty of Assyria's um, collapse, maybe called it, in chapter 31. Let's look at Isaiah's vision in chapter 32. Of the king who reigns in righteousness, verse 1, and the spirit, that's verse 9, poured out from on high. Mm. Those contrasts, they keep occurring, don't they, Alex? Yeah, that's right. 
spirit or poured out on high as verse 15. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just for, yes. yes, the king reigning in righteousness, princes, the way the king administers his rule, a man, the king will be a man. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, a man will be a hiding place from the wind. It's, it's such a wonderful, wonderful picture of the, the perfect king, the, the foretelling of the Jesus king. At last we, we will have found a dictator who's worth living under. Wow. Yeah. And notice in, in 32, two things held together, not just the king and the spirit, which of course is a very significant thing, but also the king and the perfect society. Mm. That just as the king reigns in righteousness, so in verses 5 to 8, his people are at last expressing and honouring true moral values. Mm. So the two things go together, the king and the the society. As, As John says, we are called to purify ourselves as he is pure. But when he comes, we'll be like him. Mm-hmm. He will do it for us. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll be gathered into, into the likeness of Christ. I, oh, love, that. I love that vision. Uh, and I remember when we, before we started this programme, when we were just collecting our thoughts and we were thinking about hymns, like the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land, mm-hmm. and all those ways in which that, yeah. that amazing sense of yeah. Christ and you just you know how he place of shelter and all that a cool place all those things mm-hmm. I love that those great and there's, I, there's those hymns that it, like, hide us my soul in a cleft of rock in a dry and thirsty land is it Fanny yeah, Crosby Fanny was, Crosby's oh. great hymn she wrote all oh, 8,000 hymns okay. all in all and she was blind from early days in childhood love that well it's wonderful and just glance beneath the cross of Jesus I fain would take my stand the, sh- the shadow of a great rock, shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. There's another one. A home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way. Friends, I'd like to see many of these hymns coming right back oh, into yeah. our churches. Yes. They're yes. so powerful and yes. so con- full of content. Just glancing finally at verse 30, chapter 33, the final woe, Paul. How do we see the righteous king bringing in a righteous society? Well, as we were hearing then, when we see him, we'll be like him. And he brings about a righteous society. Because in a way, people always think about patching up society. Like, oh, here's a problem with society. What we need is maybe a bit more investment or a bit more education or something. And you think, no, that isn't really. Because the vision is, is something much bigger than that. It's a vision. He wants a place where there is no death, no disease, I mean, in, in verse 24 here of, of Isaiah 33, he wants to bring about a society where no one says they're ill. <laughs> There's no sin and no illness. And we've already seen he wants no death either. This is a vision way bigger than any politician could ever even fantasize about. So he's wanting to do something where he, yes, he wipes the slate clean in his judgment and gets rid of all the old. And that's that sense of rejoicing when an old order that's rubbish falls down. The people do rejoice. It's like when the Berlin Wall fell and people rejoiced and got bits of it and everything. There was that sense of the old order's gone. It's fantastic. So, he, yeah, he's going to do away with the old and bring in this new order. But I like the fact that he's the solution to it. Yeah. So in verses 21 and 22, it's not just that he brings in new administration or new policies. I like it in verses 21 and 22. The Lord will be our mighty one. It's mm-hmm. him 
It will be a place, broad rivers and streams. Verse 22, the Lord's our judge, our lawgiver, our king. He saves us. He's what we need. He will it, save us. He will do it. Yeah. So in a way, he gets rid of the old. And what does he replace it with? Himself. Himself. Yeah. He's the answer. He's not just he provides answers. He's the answer. Mm-hmm. Yes. I lay well a stone said. in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. That's where we started. The, so the glory of that is what we've been thinking about. And as we close off, I wonder if you, as you share now, said, and have been sharing, whether you are under one or other of these situations where woes seem to predominate. And uh, we can take refuge in the fact that there is somebody greater than all of that. And that one day there will come that overturning of all the wrong things that we see, even if they're buffeting you right now, the judgment day will be the great at last of history. Mm. God bless you. God bless us all today.